This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. West Nile uh, virus has been found in in Hamilton in mosquitoes. The as you know, Hamilton Public Health uh, spends a lot of time uh, monitoring uh, mosquitoes in our area for this purpose. And now uh, we have found out that uh, the first positive tests for this season were recorded uh, just a, a couple of days ago. And uh, joining us on the line to talk about it is Dr. Mark Loeb. He's an infectious diseases uh, specialist with uh, McMaster University and Hamilton Health Sciences. Dr. Loeb, nice to have you back on the show. Nice to be here. Hello, Jamie. Hi. So um, this is the first uh, indication this season, correct, uh, that that we've got West Nile um, in among our mosquito population locally? Yeah, and it's it's really a, a sort of a message to give sort of heads up to people to be to be you know wary of it and to uh, to protect themselves because there could be some pretty serious com- complications of getting a West Nile infection. So let's talk about those complications. We you know people have heard West Nile now for years. They you know their their public health has been saying if you see dead crows. Uh, bring them into us. We'll collect them up, and so on, so on and so forth. But you know how it is. After a while, people hear the message enough, and then they start to think, "Oh, there's nothing to really be concerned about." Talk about what West Nile can do to you. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about West Nile is that most cases, about eighty percent, if you're getting infected, you're not going to have any symptoms at all. Interesting. Yeah, but maybe twenty percent of them will develop you know, a West Nile fever, and that's sort of like a headache, uh, muscle aches, maybe some nausea, vomiting, maybe a little bit of a rash, nothing much. The problem is um, less than, it's relatively rare, but less than 1% develop severe neurological disease, and that could be meningitis, which is just inflammation of the lining of the brain, and encephalitis, which is just like an inflammation within the the sort of gray matter of of the brain, or something called acute flaccid paralysis, where a person just loses use of limb, you know, the upper, the, the arm or the leg. And that's really terrible because it tends to resolve. Right, okay. And and, and are certain, uh, you know, people in the population more susceptible to this than others? In other words, are, are, are kids more susceptible to the more severe outcome or seniors, or does it not, uh, does it not discriminate? It's more, you know, it's more middle-aged uh, people and seniors. So you have people who are, you know, very active, for example, in their late 40s or 50s, you know, out, out and about uh, one day and a, a week later, they could be in intensive care unit. Uh, and, you know, the worst case scenario, they could uh, be paralyzed for the rest of their lives. So, again, not the scare people, but it's just, you know, if you could protect yourself, um, it's, it's, it's certainly worthwhile doing. All right, and all the usual protocols uh, fall into this uh, warning, uh, right? I mean, it's you've got to wear uh, repellent, or you're encouraged to wear repellent containing DEET and other things. Yeah, so you know, just basically, you want to avoid getting bitten. So you, you know, avoid mosquitoes for for one thing, and if you can be in an area where you can anticipate that there'll be mosquitoes, you know, wear long sleeves, long pants, get rid of sort of uh, water around your, your home that's, that's in a base you know, that's, being, uh, that's being collected, and, of course, uh, use mosquito rep- repellent. Uh, okay, and um, uh, again, uh, compared to last year, Dr. Loeb, uh, you know, when, when did we see the first signs of West Nile last year compared to this year, or did we see it at all? Um, well, overall, uh, 49 cases reported uh, that was uh, 
you know, uh, in in Ontario, I believe it was, uh, and I don't, I you know, I don't have exact figures on when the the first cases in were actually reported, but the numbers, you know, they go down, they go up and down in terms of uh, human cases, which started in 2002. Other than that, you know, it goes, it sort of goes up and down. 2016 again from 15, I believe there were maybe you know 30 cases 49 cases last year now uh, no human cases to date but it's just again something just to be to be aware of is it possible that we'll build up an immunity to west nile dr loeb uh, just over time over years uh and over you know exposures as you pointed out the ones that um are asymptomatic typically um, it could be, but you, you know we haven't really reached that level yet because the, the 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 burden has gone down, right? So to be really immune, you have to be by mosquito, be infected, and then the best of no, our knowledge, you're you're immune for life. Uh, but the circulation isn't that great, right? We're not seeing yeah. tons and tons of West Nile cases. So if it continues like that, I'd say it's unlikely. Right. Okay. And just uh, really quickly here at the end, um, the history of West Nile, I mean, we can draw a conclusion that it, it, the thinking is that it originated in Egypt or something because it's, or in Africa because of the Nile. Uh, can you uh, talk about where this originated and how, you know, how it got here? Well, it's, it's you know, there are certain theories. It's not clear whether, you know, there was a uh, you know, it was transmitted by a bird or, you know, through transportation means. It's, it's, it's unclear how there was an outbreak, but we know that it was an explosive outbreak in, um, in New York City. There was a, a larger outbreak that we were investigating in terms of doing a, a study in, in Oakville uh, in, in 2002. And then again, it's been sort of, you know, spreading, but over the years, it's it's not been that dramatic, but every once in a while we see cases, and, and as physicians, it's very concerning uh, when we see people who are, again, severely ill in the intensive care to say, well, you know, um, this is potentially, uh, can be prevented. All right, Dr. Mark Loeb, uh, infectious diseases specialist uh, at McMaster University in Hamilton Health Sciences. Thanks for taking a few minutes to be with us today to explain this. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Jamie. All the Bye-bye best. Now. Bye-bye. A bit of a bad line there uh, with Dr. Loeb. Can't win them all. Um, lots of concrete out there in, in, in the hospital in the McMaster. And he's a busy guy. And I'll tell you what, uh, Dr. Loeb is one of, the, um, one of the guys that we should be very happy we have in our health system in, in this community. This is a guy who, uh, who was on the forefront of uh, a lot of work with uh, H1N1, um, <clears throat> uh, flew back a, a few years ago and SARS and all of that stuff. Very, very smart guy. Very, very uh, fortunate to have uh, people like Dr. Loeb in our community and grateful that he came on our program today to to talk about a West Nile. Um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, <clears throat> I got to tell you, I haven't, uh, maybe it's just because I haven't been in mosquito zones. I mean, I got a lot of trees in a park uh, near where I live, and but I just haven't noticed uh, a lot of mosquito activity this year. And I expected it to be a bit heavier. I don't know about you, with all of this rain, I kind of thought maybe we'd, 
you know, it would be a, a bad mosquito season with all the with all the moisture. Typically, when it's dry, and we've had those dry summers, it's like eh, no mosquitoes. But uh, I don't know. Have you been bitten, Luke Vermeer? Uh, well, uh, it was. I was like you. I said it was a slow season, <laughs> and then un- until last night. <laughs> oh, seriously? Uh, really? Yeah. I uh, I I play in a ball hockey league, and uh, game no. finished, and I was covered in sweat, and so were all the other guys around me. And as it turns out, that's a good thing for mosquitoes. So we were out at. Uh, uh, the uh, the go kart track uh, down Upper James. That's what there's a little okay, ball hockey yeah, rink there. On Highway Six. Yeah, yeah and uh, yeah, there's a, as it turns out, the mosquitoes are well they're well, <laughs> well established, well, well this established year. out there. Oh, yeah, well. and, and I got got quite a few bites. Well, and I suspect now that that's probably why we're we're hearing about West Nile yeah. too, right? They've uh, they've come to do their thing. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. There, here's another interesting one. A woman has filed a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario because she wants to normalize the act of swimming topless. Uh, Marie-Pierre Dupont says her client, uh, who does not wish to be named, was prompted to file a complaint when she was searching for a hotel for the occasion of her husband's birthday. She asked several hotels if she would be allowed to swim without a top, uh, as is her preference. And according to her lawyer, the complainant was told by several hotels that she would not be allowed to swim topless, but was not given any reason or explanation. Um, Her lawyer's quote is saying some people have suggested that it's kind of dishonest of her to do a complaint without actually having been a client. The real reasoning behind that is simply because she doesn't want to be put in a situation where she would be publicly uh, humiliated. 905-645-3221, 905-645-3221, star 9900. What do you think about that? Do you think the hotels should have allowed her to swim topless? Uh, should have said, yeah, we're okay with that. That's fine. You know, sign up, check in, come on in. No problem. Or did they do the right thing by saying, no, uh, we're going to tell you not to do it here. 905-645-3221, star 9900. This topless thing. Um you know, we know that it's legal for women to go topless in Ontario. That's that's on the books. That's done, done, and done years ago. Remember the name Gwen Jacobs, Guelph, all of that? That battle's been fought and won. Women have the legal right to walk around topless if they want to. But I don't know. Do you think that it's the hotels should have said, yeah, it's legal, so go ahead? Um, Jeffrey Reed is a Hamilton lawyer, and he joins us now with uh, his thoughts on this. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks for the time today. Well, uh, good afternoon, Jamie. I hope that uh, we can throw a little light on this, although uh, I suspect uh, it'll take quite a while for the dust to settle. Yeah, so let's um, let's go uh, back to, uh, you know, the the idea, well, not idea, uh, going topless for women in Ontario is legal, correct? Well, it goes back to the Jacob case, and in that case, uh, she had taken a stroll down uh, the road on what was described as being a particularly uh, hot and humid day, and she went topless. She got charged with an indecent act uh, offense, which is under the criminal code, and there are different tests there because it is a criminal code offense. And so uh, the court had to decide, the judge decided it was uh, an indecent act, and and the Court of Appeal had to decide whether the judge got it right. And what the um, court really seems to have decided that the uh, trial judge had used the wrong test. He uh, he had used a test as to what uh, um, the uh, community would have approved, and he said it's not really that, it's more like what they would uh, tolerate. So 
So uh, in that case, uh, he said, uh, the judges, I should say, there were two men who concurred, and then uh, I think uh, one of the judges was a female who also concurred but wrote a separate opinion. But they uh, basically concluded that the uh, the correct test is what's the uh, community standard of tolerance. Um, and that doesn't mean approval, but it means, like, what can we uh, put up with? And they looked at her case, and they said, well, there's no commercial element to it. There's, uh, it's not like she's uh, acting this way uh, for any uh, apparent sexual purpose. Um, and uh, they said the test the judge had used was uh, wrong. He used a test that was his assessment of how women choose to act as opposed to what the contemporary national community would tolerate. I have to say that these are really hard tests to apply because you, you could ask the question, well, how do we know what it is? And the answer is, I don't know how it is, and I don't know if anybody else really does. You do a lot of polling, I suppose, and in these cases, sometimes that's the, the way they're uh, handled by doing some polling, um, getting some experts who purport to know what the community will or won't uh, tolerate. Anyways, uh, she was uh, she was permitted to do that. Yeah, uh, and, and and you know, in the in the years uh, that have ensued uh, since that, what year was that? I'm, I'm thinking that's, that's 1996. 1996. Okay, yeah. thank yeah. you. Uh, in the years that have gone by since then. I remember part of the discussion, of course, at the time was, oh, my goodness, women are going to be taking their tops off like crazy and and walking around and, oh, you know, the children and, oh, this, that, and the other thing. And, of course, that didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. I I remember somewhat anecdotally, and I I hope I don't get this wrong, but but I'm pretty sure that uh, then Iverwind Stadium uh, very rapidly responded, um, and I thought rather cleverly too, by saying that uh, as far as their activities are concerned on that property, uh, neither men nor women would uh, be permitted to, uh, you know, be spectators and so forth, walk around topless. Uh, personally, I have to just put a personal note in. I was happy because I'm really not that keen about having some some sweaty, hairy guy. Well, exactly. Now that's an, that's an obscene act. <laughs> well, that's a good argument to be made for that. You know, come but on. It certainly is offensive to me, but that, but but I'm not the community standard. So so they they reacted that way. Now they were clever because they said that. So that you know they couldn't be faulted for saying, well, we're just you know addressing women. We're addressing men as well. This is a little different because she's saying, well, men can go jump in the pool with no uh, with uh, nothing bare chested. Uh, why can't women? Uh, I think that it's. Uh, Problematic, you know the uh, the uh, the test under the Human Rights Code is a fairly simple. Um, it's, a, it's a very simple statement, but of course it's very complicated to apply. And there are lots of extra elements to this in the uh, Human Rights Code. But Ontario Human Rights Code says every person has the right to equal treatment with respect to services, goods, and facilities without discrimination because of. And there's a whole lot of things that are listed. One of which is sex, and then and they go on uh, about that. So um, so then, on his face, it seems to be very straightforward, but it's when you get something like this, it's not so straightforward at all. No, but uh, some, uh, some uh, hotels are changing their policies of where they weren't allowing topless um, bathing, I suppose, to go on. They're, they're changing that now. Is, is that because they're getting phone calls from lawyers saying, um, you, you better change your policy or you'll find yourself uh, in litigation? I don't know. I haven't been phoning up any <laughs> hotels, but, uh, but maybe they are getting some, or, or, or maybe it reflects uh, a more uh, liberal uh, standard. I mean, you know, our mm-hmm. society is just 
I mean, at my age, I look back over my life, and it's amazing to see to what extent uh, we've gone from uh, uh, a much more conservative view of public uh, expressions of morality and so forth to to what we've got now. I mean, we still have limits, but they're much more liberal than they once were. So I don't know the answer to that. Also raises questions like, uh, then do you do do you post it and say warn people? You know, on television, every time they have a a news story on where uh, there's something that's alarming, they they constantly say, you know, these images uh, may be alarming to some people or, or disturbing. So do you now start to say? Or, and what do they start to do about that? Do they say, well, uh, uh, these are hours when people can jump in uh, topless, uh, and are these, these are other hours where we're not going to do that for those who might not want to, you know, who also have a, a, a right to use the pool, but, but you know, it's going to be uncomfortable for them. I don't know, it's really a complicated can of worms. Yeah, it, it, it seems to be. So, so what uh, kind of legs does a complaint to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario have for this woman, in your opinion? Uh, well, I don't practice the area, and I, in some respects, I'm happy I don't. I stick to uh, criminal defense work, but um, I think she's going to uh, have a. I think she's got a, a a good cause to have a good hearing. I'm not at all sure about the outcome, though, because there are ways of dealing with like discrimination is so easy to say and then so hard to apply under the uh, Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms there's a clause that talks about equality before the law which uh, prohibits discrimination uh, uh, in terms of uh, one's uh, right to equal, equal protection and benefit of the law there are different tests completely but even there there are situations where people could be treated unequally and yet not be considered discriminatory and you can see affirmative action programs sometimes fall into that category so I'm not at all sure how this w- will break out. Um, and I think that one of the problems they're going to struggle with is the fact that uh, uh, my guess is that the vast majority of the public, not everybody, but a vast majority would probably say, uh, probably be inclined to uh, go on the conservative side of this and say that, um, you know, you could have access to the pool, but uh, you're a lady, put your top on. Yeah, I think that's still there. I think I think you're right, Jeffrey. I think um, that's how... How most people still still feel, and I and when I say most people, I'm including uh, most women. I and, think and, you know. Yeah, sorry, Jamie. I was just going to say, and I appreciate in the uh, Jacob case there was a question of it's not a question of what would other women do or or feel comfortable doing, but what will the student community tolerate. But, uh, you know, in this case, it seems to me that um, a, a lot of the public would actually uh, think that, uh, you know, where's the harm? They're going to say, you know, you're not prohibited from swimming. You can use the pool just like anybody else. It's just that you have to put a top on. And I thought it was odd, and I'm going to let the, your listeners and, and you and so forth decide on this, but the CBC uh, news story that I, I read over the wire um, quotes her lawyer saying, uh, quote, um, uh, 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 quote, but they discriminate against women because of some type of different conception of the woman's breast versus the man's breast. Well, I'm going to let that just hang there for your readers to, to <laughs> stew on that one for themselves. And then, then it goes on later on the story. It says, quote, um, this is from apparently a quote from DuPont, quote, there is no difference between female breasts and men breasts. Oh, I'm afraid there well, is. I mean, like, I, you know, I, I'm going to let others decide this. I'm just throwing it out there. But <laughs> I'm having a little difficulty uh, getting my head around that. You lawyers are always stirring it up. And, and, <laughs> and, and in the world of talk radio, that's welcome here, let me tell you. Yeah, well, there you go. It's a it, hot afternoon, something to talk about. There you go. Jeffrey Reed, uh, Hamilton uh, criminal defense uh, lawyer. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Give me a call anytime. All right, you take care. Have Thanks. Have a good one. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. 
Joining us on the line is Eric Alper. He's a music publicist, and uh, it's good to have you uh, back, Eric. Uh, you know, it's always great to talk to you under, um, you know, less happy situations, but I just finished doing a, uh, a 12-part tweet about this very topic that seems to be going viral as, I, as you and I talk about this, because I think it's happening um, much too often on a regular level, and I'm talking like on an everyday level with just your average person on the street, but it's certainly happening, it seems, more and more with musicians and actors and actresses and quote-unquote celebrities that, uh, that do art for a living. Well, and we certainly notice it um, a lot more because uh, these people are, in a lot of cases, better known to us than than maybe our neighbor three doors down, right? Yeah, and I think that that's the, the amazing thing and the horrible thing about social media, all in the same aspect of it, is that we all now have access to every minute detail of the people that we look up to um, that we would never have access to. And I think that puts a little bit of pressure um, on those artists or especially, say, musicians who want to tell their story. It's not so much that they're looking for the limelight, but in the case of Chester Bennington, who you, you know, brought up so eloquently in the, in the introduction, I mean, this is a guy who you know, was sexually abused at the age of seven by a family friend. His, Chester's own father is a police officer that worked with sexual abuse cases. And when Chester told him about what was going on, they they actually chose not to press charges because it turned out that that man was sexually abused himself and, you know, uh, knew that that cycle was just going to be really, really hard to stop. And they can sympathize a little bit with what's going on. That led to the drug and alcohol abuse that he had in his teenage years up until his adult life and then coming out as pretty much clean and sober. But all of that we know because he just happened to be one of these musicians who was so open about his private life because he knew that he had a lot of young, impressionable fans. Right. And, and this is, make no mistake, this is, a, this is a very large loss to the music world, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, this was not a band on the way down by any means whatsoever. You know, their their debut album, Hybrid Theory, back in 2000, sold 10 million copies in America. Very few albums sell that many. I'm talking like less than 40, 50 copies. Uh, sorry, 40, 50 releases have sold that many. In fact, it was the, the biggest debut album of the decade in the year 2000 to 2010. Um they were going to go out on tour starting in July the 27th with Blink-182 and Wu-Tang Clan actually, you know, making stops in Montreal and Toronto in August. You know, their album debuted at number one on the Billboard album charts and other charts around the world. Five of their seven albums debuted at number one. This was a band that, you know, was probably one of the biggest rock slash rap slash electronica bands that are out there. Did uh, did he leave a note? As far as I know, they haven't revealed anything like that. Um, and, and I think that that stuff may come out, uh, my guess is probably going to be in the next week or so, once they do the autopsy and if a newspaper or somebody in the media wants to do a Freedom of Information Act. Um, I don't know whether or not... Huh, I don't know whether or not it matters anymore. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the fact that he did it 
on Chris Cornell's 53rd or what would have been his 53rd birthday. I mean, Chris Cornell was a really good friend of, of Chester Bennington. In fact, Chris was the godfather to one of his sons. Hmm. They were really, really close. I'm sure that that weighed quite heavily that that day was coming up. And sometimes, you know, sometimes when you just get in these ruts and, and people with mental illness will, will always say this, until you've been in it yourself, it's really difficult to actually fathom what it's like. Um, and I think that it's okay. You know, it's only natural to kind of put my, your, or everybody else's, you know, impression on what was going through the mind of Chester. But I, looking back, I think that the signs were there and I'm not sure that while it's a shock, I don't know if it's a surprise anymore. You know, what frightens me, Eric is, um, is that those two, uh, those two deaths uh, so close together, and and they were close friends, as you you've indicated. W- what concerns me is, and maybe this is just a, a byproduct of getting older and and having more life experiences. I think about how influential um, musical artists are on young people. That's always been the case uh, since the beginning of rock and roll. Um, and what what concerns me is how many how many young people are out there. Um, looking at this and on some level maybe glorifying it a little bit and and others who are in such deep pain maybe just taking it as a as a cue that this is what you do that that's frightening to me that thought and it's very real i felt the exact same thing you know when i first tweeted about um his passing it got a couple of hundred retweets and shares and likes and that's kind of normal when i tweeted the suicide hotline numbers in Canada, U.S., and the U.K., that got thousands. And so what that tells me is that I think we all know what that next step is for teenagers that might be thinking of do, of going this route. I mean, you saw it with Kurt Cobain. There were a number of, of suicides that followed. But, yeah, I, don't, I, I think it's not a sign of getting older. I think we're just far more aware that um, it's a different generation. There's a lot more pressure. There's a lot more social media. So I think we're a lot more aware of every minute detail that goes on in a celebrity's life or a musician's life if they choose to do that, which is a little bit bizarre because we, look, I, I still to this day, and I've been in the music industry for 20, 25 years, today is the 30th anniversary of Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction album. I tweeted about that and I posted that and we all know the rambunctious guys in Guns N' Roses, how much drugs they took, how much alcohol, but there seems to be a passing moment of time where you can say, yeah, man, Jimi Hendrix was really cool, but he was on drugs half the time. Yeah. It was cool to like glorify Jim Morrison's death, but he was, you know, he wasn't clean and sober at all either. Yeah. And, 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 I think in in some cases this is going to sound a little odd, but in some cases, you know, you can these pop stars can get away with the hard living, even the the addiction to to various drugs and alcohol, go into rehab, come out, fight it, get addicted again, you know, go in sober up, sure, and and run through that cycle. It seems to be the other. It seems to be the other thing, the depression. Uh, the anxiety, the other elements or tentacles on this really ugly octopus of mental illness that is always seems to be the tipping point for these for these people. And in the case, I would say of Kurt Cobain, certainly uh, of of Chris Cornell, um, and and more obviously, I think um, Chester Bennington with what he 
uh, suffered as a child with that ab- abuse. And, and in all cases, Eric, we, we don't know the full story. We, we don't know the full story on Chris no. Cornell. We don't know the full story on Kurt Cobain. We, we never will because we, were, we weren't those people. To a T, every musician that I've ever known that have had a drug and alcohol problem, and there have been a lot, um, a great majority of them have cleaned up. Mm-hmm. But to a T, after about a year of their, of their abuse, it gets into the depression stage of why they continue to, to be addicted. Um, because it's all fun and games when you're 18, 19 years old and you've got, you know, every yes man on the planet. Yeah, you're getting high. You it yeah, feels you're good. you're getting high. Exactly. You're just doing it because it feels good. After a while, though, when you come off of the, off of the stage and you get back to your, your, your crappy little hotel. Yeah. The low. Two in the morning and nobody is around you. You've got to get that high again. And I can't justify it, but I understand it. And that's where a lot of that depression comes from because it's a drug. It doesn't just make you feel good. It's designed to essentially screw up and wire your brain a little bit differently. Did you ever feel weird about some of the artists you were around? I mean, you don't have to name names, but, um, you know, you, you've been around this business a long time and worked with some, some well-known names. Um, did you ever look at them and think, oh, man. You know, you're 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 somebody that I think, at least from the outside, is heading down the wrong path here. Almost as my humanistic duty, if I've ever seen that, I've told somebody else on their team about it. What they decide to do with that information hmm. is entirely up to them. And that was the reason why I kind of purged a little bit when it came to, to Twitter today, because I think we all have not only a moral responsibility to make sure that these people get help, um, but that we listen and we talk to them a little bit more than maybe what we're doing. Because it's very easy as an employer, which these managers and, and record labels and booking agents are, they employ the artists to help them make money. Just like if you were an insurance salesman at yep. an insurance company or you at your radio station, when you have a problem, there's a direction that you can go to for help. If they're a really great company, they will you know, keep your job and make sure that you get the help that you need. In the music and entertainment industry specifically, it seems like everybody is out there that have a problem in an ocean without a life jacket. And they just kind of feed the beast a little bit because everybody is afraid to hit the stop button because of the record sales and the touring and the, the amount of people that are involved. It's not just two or three people. When a group like, say, Metallica comes into your town, they're bringing a staff of 400, 500 people with them that all rely on them to get on stage or record that album by a certain period of time. So it's really hard to stop when you're not them. And I think like, like an average everyday person, if that person doesn't want to stop themselves, it's really difficult to, for, for anybody else to get them to make a change. Why, why is it that the people on the team around these artists uh, aren't more often able to intervene in a positive way with these artists to pull them back from the brink, so to speak? Um, uh, you know, I often wonder about that. I often think, you know, how come with all of these people around them and some of the I know not everybody's on the real inner circle. There's a few that are with these artists. But why aren't they able to uh, prevent this more of the time? You know, because they because they are they do seem to be around or, or am I have I got that all wrong? 
No, I, I, I think there, there's two really simplistic answers, and, and both of them may not even apply to somebody like Chester or somebody like Chris Cornell. The first is that the music industry, and I say this with all love and respect for the music industry, is one of the scuzziest industries out there. You know, we will sell our own mothers for a hit song in some cases. So it, it's something like that the industry is really kind of filled with a lot of sharks, a lot of people who don't have the artist's best interest. You'll, it's rare when you find somebody like a John Landau who manages Bruce Springsteen who will take a bullet for your artist over yeah. 50 years. That's a rare case. There's others in Canada, Bernie Finkelstein and Bruce Coburn, for instance. You know, What about Irving with the Eagles? Yeah, absolutely. You know, John Henley has a great quote about him. He said he's the devil, but at least he's our devil. Mm-hmm. So... That's the first reason. I think the second reason is that I'm not convinced that we all know how to deal with this. I'm not convinced that even doctors or people in the medical community or the mental health industry, as amazing of a job as they do, we still haven't figured out that golden ticket idea to make people want to help themselves or that cure-all, snap-your-fingers idea. It's a really tough road to go on to recovery, and I'm not sure that... We actually have all the answers, whether you're a musician yeah. or whether you are just an average yeah. person with the problem. I think that um, I think you're right about that. I think that there's a real um, there's a real lack of understanding of recog- fully recognizing when a person's um, in in trouble, and then knowing what to do about it. Uh, again, there there has to be more research done. There's got to be more study done on recognizing. Uh, the signs and being able to get the appropriate intervention in place uh, right away, and and that's a tough one uh, with depression and anxiety and addiction. It's 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 been a difficult one for 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 many many years. I just hope that we can get a handle on it, along with you know offering and providing more resources for mental health. I mean, in Canada, in the United States, around the world, and I think it begins by talking about it the way people are talking today. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's still that it's still that awareness factor. It's still that stigma that is very much out there, especially when you're a teenager where, you know, you've got so much more peer pressure, I think, than ever before. Um, What what is being said about somebody, whether you're being bullied online is so much worse. And I, I think what you and I went through when we maybe had one bully in the halls of high school. And we certainly, even back then, didn't want to tell the teacher because then the teacher would tell the, the parents and then the kids would go beat us up you know, yeah. even more. Um, but now I think it's so easy to make and ruin somebody's day when you're halfway around the world by calling them fat, by calling yep. them ugly, by saying that they're stupid. I have total strangers you know, every once in a while, just insult me based on what I said. And I have no idea who they are. I can only imagine what it's like for a teenager that I'm smart enough to know to walk away from a computer or block them. When you're 15 years old and you just want things to be okay and you want people to like you and your whole belief system is based on likes, shares and retweets, that's a real difficult thing to get over um, to decide that you are going to tell somebody else about what you're going through. But I think, you know, more and more it's happening. It's just happening, I think, a lot slower than what we would all hope that we could snap our fingers and make something happen. Eric Alper, music publicist, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for the time today, as always, and the insights. Uh, We'll talk again down the road.
Absolutely. Happy to always talk to you, man. We'll talk soon. All the best. Bye for now. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.